I did it on a WordPress site. I hired the first employee and I raised capital. Oh, maybe I am CEO. <laughs> right? We posted on Indeed for 10 individuals to pilot and we got over 200 applications. You look at me being the granddaughter of someone who could barely read and write. That is a third culture experience. I think that beauty needs to transcend color. How do we innovate the beauty chair? The fundraising journey when it comes to being a founder of color is unique. There were a lot of people who told me I couldn't do it and I'm still here. What's up on Foundation? Dan Kihanya here, your host for Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for listening in. You just heard our guest for this episode, Rika Elise from BeautyLink. She's transforming on-demand in-home beauty service. She's a bright star in the Boston startup community. Our episode is sponsored by Perfect Pitches by Precious. Precious Williams teaches the art and science of killer elevator media and investor pitches. As always, if you're excited about what we're doing with Founders Unfound, you can find our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please follow us on Twitter and now Instagram at Founders Unfound. Or go to our website, foundersunfound.com, and sign up for our updates. Please follow, like, and share, and help us grow. Now, on with the episode. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode six in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Mojo Sarika Elise. Like many of our founders, she's got a strong heritage in service and community outreach, but don't let that mislead you. Rika is a savvy businesswoman and a fierce entrepreneur. She's a champion for women-led startups as co-founder of At The Table and Female Founders Day. But today, we're going to speak with Rika about her startup, BeautyLink, a company that brings on-demand beauty to you at home, at the office, or on the road. Welcome to the show, Rika, and thanks so much for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm more than happy to like share experiences every time I get a chance. Terrific. Well, let's start off with maybe you can talk a little bit more about what is BeautyLink and how does it work? BeautyLink is a personalized on-demand service. So think about it as, yes, it is makeup artists and hairstylists on wheels. However, we gather the data that we need in order to make these appointments great. So everything from if you have oily skin, if you have curly hair, or if you have a, if you're tenderheaded, right? We gather all that information and we allow beauty professionals to accept and decline based off of their preferences. It's something that's not really done right now, but as you start thinking about what beauty really is, it's a personal journey, right? right? And because of that, we wanted to be intentional about gathering the data that would make it always a personal experience. I love that. I think that we're, we're in this era where people just have that expectation. I don't want one size fits all. I want something that uh, matches who I am and what I want and what my needs are. So it makes a ton of sense. And maybe you can talk a little bit about where is it located? Uh, Like, are you around the country? How many people you have working on it? We're in 30 cities across the United States, and we're in six cities globally, including Dubai, Egypt, Jordan, London, 
So it's been a really interesting wow. experience bringing things together. But when it comes to the amount of beauty professionals, we're in a couple of thousand, right? We're a little bit over 25,000 at this point. And there's wow. a lot of great lessons to be, to be learned. Like, what does it necessarily mean to use technology and scale that, right? And then when it comes to the executive team or like the on the ground team, we're really a small team of six. I was intentional about always thinking, I want my team to be able to meet at a dinner table. I don't want it to be like two dinner tables, three <laughs> dinner tables. I want to be able to say, we can go to a restaurant and have one table and we're all there, right? It's intentional about thinking about it as, as we're family, right? Not the extended family, just the family. It's been a very interesting journey when it comes to hiring and firing and understanding the difference between a consultant, a coach, an employee, right? All of that has been a, a wonderful experience thus far. That's going to be great to unpack for sure. But why don't we start by uh, helping the audience understand who you are and sort of what's your background? Where did you come from? How did you end up becoming an entrepreneur? I've always been mission oriented, if anything. So I think that I go where my heart is. And prior to starting BeautyLink, I was in a nonprofit sector, working in development. So raising capital for nonprofits and their missions and the work that they were doing. Everything from a homeless shelter to a prostate cancer organization to a youth program. So I've had like a breadth of like great things that I've done. But to become the entrepreneur, I think was the toughest journey for me because I had to decide to accept the title of CEO, right? And right. I think there's something that isn't really spoken about for a majority of it, right? Like everybody will put CEO in the email and not know what that means. And <laughs> yeah, I decided to be very, very thoughtful with my process of accepting what my role was. And so I didn't want to be called a CEO for a very long time. I just wanted to be called a founder, right? Because I was looking at this as like the person who's the executive will come over and take over at one point. And to realize my journey going from, I drew this on a piece of paper, I did it on a WordPress site, I hired the first employee, and I raised capital. Oh, maybe I am CEO. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Just, just getting to that point and understanding what that meant was a huge journey for me. I will say it's a complete accident. It's not intentional. I did not go out and say, I want to be the richest person in the world and I need to be a CEO. I was never my role, my goal, my mission, that, that was never it. Most of the successful entrepreneurs at the end of the day are people who pursue the passion and feel like they are the person that has to solve this problem. And the hope is the world recognizes it, embraces it, and rewards you for it. But most, most of what drives entrepreneurs, at least the ones that are, have the resilience and perseverance, I think is that passion. That makes a lot of sense. So when you were doing kind of the nonprofit world and, and embracing that, which I, I applaud, and I also think it's one of the more difficult places to operate just because nobody really has to give you anything. <laughs> so you have to raise money, you have to get volunteers, you have to convince people of the mission. So it's a pretty hard place and probably good training wheels ultimately for some of the day-to-day -day things you have to deal with as an entrepreneur. 
I'd say that it is a great training wheels to learn how to work with a small budget and what collaboration really looks like. My first job, I was 13 or 14 and I worked at a nonprofit. So I was working for nonprofits pretty much from 14 to through my, my twenties. Right. And the things that I think are the most interesting about what I've been able to learn is the power of the letter, right? The letter can raise money, can get you volunteers, can do so much. And now it's been translated into email, of course, but learning how to write a great letter is what led to me deciding to stay in the nonprofit sector. Interesting. And do you feel like you mastered it? I think that I've learned how to be pretty direct and pretty short with what I need to say in a thoughtful way. Like you may say, give me that money. And I will say on our journey together, we have done some great things with X number, Y number, and it can continue with your donation right? Like, it's just understanding how to use that narrative to build the story, build the drama around what you need to do. Just because you change the life of 25 people doesn't mean that everybody cares. But if you can bring one of those stories from the 25 people and share how $100,000 will allow you to do four times that work, it's important. Absolutely. And again, I think this is a tremendous... Uh, skill set and experience that entrepreneurs need too, right? You got to be able to tell a story that resonates, that shows impact and can make impact, but you can't write 50 pages to do it, or you can't have somebody, you know, watch a two hour video necessarily, right? So especially when you're out trying to get customers and investors and potential employees, the story has to be dramatic, succinct, and impactful. I definitely agree that they, they're great for entrepreneurship, but I think they're just great for being a person, right? For just like understanding that sometimes you need to be able to translate someone's story to be important. When I think about my family history, for example, right? You look at me being the granddaughter of someone who could barely read and write then my mom coming into this country and then me coming into this like you know realization of what my journey is but it doesn't look simple right growing up in the hood not having this not wearing this doing this eating that like no one talks about that but when you think about this journey of entrepreneurship every single thing that has ever happened in your life dictates your storytelling skills so true. And one of the things I love about doing these podcasts is that the stories are so rich. People are good storytellers. And like you said, it's the content is really the thing that helps you. Even if you don't think you're a great storyteller, you can't help but be because you have these fascinating and unique story arcs of life. I mean, just what you said about, you know, having a grandparent that couldn't read and write and then your mom coming to this country. Um, and where'd she come from? She came from Haiti. She didn't actually come from Africa. So I was just like, oh, wow. Yeah. I'm in the batch where they came from Africa. But you know, Haiti, Haitians are very prideful. Yes. They're the first Black independent and they will let you know every day of the week. 
<laughs> yes, this is true. You know, my I'm I'm from Boston and my family lives there and my mom's church has many many Haitian folks there and I know exactly what you're talking about. And you're right. I mean, there's a lot of pride there. And America is an interesting place for people who come. My dad was the first generation to come here. He came from Kenya. There's sort of this optimism and enthusiasm about the opportunities and then sort of realities come to play, like you're talking about. Did you have any entrepreneurs in your family or experience with people growing up or anything that were entrepreneurial? Everybody in my family was an entrepreneur. I mean, we grew up and like my grandmother sold the produce that we grew on our farms, right? In order to make sure that my mom and my aunt, but that was from a sharecropping perspective, right? But that's entrepreneurship. She put it on her head and she went and she sold in the streets and she, whatever she got, she made sure it was feeding the family. Like to hear stories from my mom about how my grandmother would eat and just drink a cup of coffee. Wow. It's crazy. But that's how hard it was, right? That's how strong she was. Isn't that amazing to think about? My grandparents were kind of in the same boat. Life is so, there's a strenuousness to it, but there's also a simplicity of purpose, right? It's like- we got to feed ourselves. We got to take care of ourselves. That's a focus. You know, we want a legacy of the next generation to be able to have maybe more opportunities than we do. And so how do we get that generation there? And I think that resilience is built into the DNA of a lot of entrepreneurs that come from underrepresented backgrounds. I definitely agree. I think that there's a level of resiliency that we have when we're not, um, when we're first generation U.S., right? It's just my family didn't come here for this. Right. My family did not come here for this. Like, you have to do everything. You think about you not finishing the food on your plate, and then you get to meet 10 kids when you go to visit your grandparents that don't even know where food is coming the next day. Like, you know, these are the things that you get to deal with and experience, and they tell you. I mean, I'd say I'm more of the third culture, right? I have to be just as American as every American kid but I have to be just as Haitian as my parents want me to be, right? And then I fall in the middle of this whole, like, I have to do both. I have right. to do both. I can't just do one. So I'm just falling in the middle somewhere. So I, I consider it to be like this third culture experience, right? That's a great way to put it. What's an example of a third culture life that people may not really understand? The thing that I enjoyed the most is eating fried chicken, right? <laughs> There's American fried chicken, there's Caribbean fried chicken. Those are two very different things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But what happens when your mom tries to give you the American experience but still needs it to be seasoned the Haitian way and it comes into this like hybrid thing that has flour on it. It's fried but doesn't look like KFC. You see, that is a third culture experience. Right. Even when you think about how progressive our parents are becoming with celebrating Thanksgiving, for example, nothing that they grew up with. But because they're here, they decided they need to make it theirs. And then it has no American food whatsoever on the table aside from from that. It's like, oh, we got the rice, we got the plantains, we got this, we got that. And it's just like, mom, this isn't Thanksgiving. (laughs) Oh, yes, this is our Thanksgiving. You know? Right, right. Which I think actually is is so refreshing, right? I think it for you to be able to say, I can navigate how this could be, 
in a way that is honoring my heritage, but also is honoring, the, you know, American culture, right? Which we, we all seem to try to embrace, right? Definitely. I think there's some fun in talking about intersectionality. And I remember being in the sixth or seventh grade and reading Zoral near Hurston for the first time, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Right. And I was like, oh my goodness, she's living two lives. She's yeah. like this woman dealing with being beat up, but she's a black woman. And she didn't realize she was a black woman until later. Wait, hold up. What is this? And then that's when I fell in love with Du Bois. There you go. Double consciousness and getting deeper and understanding the the whole entire situation of intersectionality, you know? Absolutely. And more and more, unpacking that, I think, is incumbent upon us all. I, gr- I mean, I'm quite a bit older than you, so I grew up a couple of decades ahead of you. And I was still from the era where assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. You know, do keep your culture on the side, you know, do things you need to do, you know, when you're on your own time and your own community, but assimilate, you know, and get along, go along to get along. And it's so it's encouraging to me that, you know, sort of the next generations that have come along and said, no, wait a minute, you know, there's, there's, there's still some navigation here, but I want to wear who I am because that's who I am. That's authentically what I'm going to be. So it's exciting to to see that happening for sure. We will take a short break to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Rika Elise from Beautylink. Have you ever wondered what it would take to get national media interested in you, your company, or your brand? Are you looking for investor dollars in your company? Have you been to too many networking events and haven't figured out the perfect pitch to get someone to call you back? Then look no further than Perfect Pitches by Precious.com. Hi, my name is Precious Williams, and I'm officially known as the Killer Pitch Master. I will help you slay all competition. So if you're looking for the perfect or the killer elevator pitch, media pitch, or investor pitch for your company, then check me out at www.perfectpitchesbyprecious.com. I've gotten my clients on Shark Tank, CNN, Wall Street Journal, and a host of other big programs and national television networks. I can do it for you as I've done it for a lot of women entrepreneurs and speakers. Check us out. Perfect pitches by precious.com. Well, we're back with Rika Elise from Beauty Link. We were just talking about the wonderful world of being first generation immigrant in the United States and sort of the benefits and the challenges. But let's shift gears a little bit and talk a bit more about Beauty Link. Where did the idea come from and how did you decide to do it? You know, the reality of it is is that the idea came from a combination of things, right? I was leading a meetup of Black women at the time. I had family members that also had a need. And so it didn't even really come together to me until a family member asked me if they could get something done at home. And I made the calls. I already knew the stylist. I already was leading a meetup in this area. So telling them, hey, can you come over at 11 o'clock? And they're like, yeah, sure, no problem. You know, I handle clients pretty much between 11 and 3 when it's not a Thursday through Sunday. Oh, okay. And then, you know, leaving it up, you know, after that. Like I, I built a little miniature website so that person could always just click through and I wouldn't have to constantly do all the hand calling for it. So I built the first iteration of BeautyLink on WordPress. Excellent. And after I built it on WordPress, which I think was a great lesson for MVPs. Do you so, have a technical background or? I don't have a technical background. And, you know, usually most of the fireside chats I do, 
and conversations I have with founders, it's really about digging behind that, right? How did you become a technical founder with no technical background? Yeah. What do you say? And the simple fact of it is, is that I went manual. Like building my WordPress site allowed me to find challenges. It allowed me to see how long it would really take for someone to accept an appointment if I called them or text them manually. Right. It also gave me the route on if people were responsive to pictures or icons. It also gave me the feedback on if people cared about a certain service or didn't. And I did that alone. I so mean, when that's I did tremendous. That alone, when I did that alone, right, we had, I think we had gotten somewhere between fifteen dollars or $20,000 at that point. And it was very interesting for me because I finally figured out how to translate my product to someone who was technical. What was that epiphany? How did you work that through? What was sort of the key to that? That's a really profound thing, I imagine. It is a profound thing, but I think that people forget literally that some of the things that you can do in order to just figure out how your website works is drawing it on a piece of paper and asking someone to perform something. Isn't that funny that we we're in such a tool driven society that we can't even go back to the basics. So at my company, we do the exact same thing. It's like, Hey, if you wanted to do this, what if I, and then you draw a picture and say, would that help? And the, the learning and the acceleration in how you get to your solution just from that experience can be so much more than building, you know, 50 landing pages with different messages and running Google. You have to get to the heart of the why the consumer or you know, the end customer is going to care. Yeah. Once I got the drawing out of the way and got the WordPress out of the way, I waited six to seven months before I approached my first developer. Why? Because I wanted to be sure I knew my problems. I didn't want to tell them that I needed to be automated if I really didn't need to be automated. Absolutely. Most people don't think about it that way. They think about it in the sense of, well, I just need a little bit of indication that somebody wants this and then we'll go build it to scale. And so you did this MVP, get in front of the customer, customer discovery type work, you got to a point where you thought, okay, maybe this is something that I want to actually build out, have a real clarity on what's the pain point and how we possibly could solve this. How did you make that next leap? Were you doing this full time at that point or were you doing other no. things? No, I was doing other things. I was still a development executive before I took the big plunge. But one thing I would tell entrepreneurs that are listening to this, do you save money if what you want to do is go full time? With a right. product that you're not really sure is going to sustain itself. But BeautyLink had been at that point where it was making money off of every single transaction. So it was about taking it to scale. And you started with um, one area, I imagine, one city. Started with Boston and with hair and makeup. We found a lot of challenges around hair because of the regulatory things that we had to deal with. But makeup was relatively easy because there's no licensing for makeup. It was something that, you know, became more and more of an issue for me as we continue to scale and now has transformed it as an issue for me as we're going international and licensing looks different in every single location. I can see how that'd be a challenge for sure. The, the number one thing before I got to connect with developers was I had to tell my story on BeautyLink why I was doing it. And when I was sharing the story about why I was doing it, I got developers to approach me because they connected with the mission. The more progress you make, the more the story resonates, the less 
you have to push and the more people come into you because they're drawn to it, right? Yeah, they were drawn to it. They liked it. I mean, my first version of the website with a developer cost me less than $2,000 because he was so connected with the mission. That's great. Then the next iteration of the platform didn't cost me anything. Anything? No, because their family member had used it. So basically, almost like a customer testimonial turned into somebody saying, I got to help build this. Yeah, they felt the pain and they wanted to fix the pain. That's awesome. Um, That's awesome. And after, after that happened, I got a technical advisor to be able to review my code on a regular basis because I didn't want to go down the route of getting a CTO because that requires a lot of like, you know, positive relationship. And I wasn't ready for that yet. I was still trying to solve my problem. I still am trying to solve my problem. What is it that I can do better? But, you know, once I got a developer involved, there were a lot of the things that changed. And most of what changed really had to do with the need for me to touch the product. Like, I no longer had to make sure I was checking on how the customers were getting synced with the beauty professionals. Because we started asking the right questions. We knew that, you know, a beauty professional who has a cat allergy can't go to someone's house that has a cat. We automatically put that out. Of course. In the early days, we couldn't do that because we were doing everything manually. So we had to call through every single beauty professional and ask, do you have a cat allergy? Do you not? Here's a possible booking that works for you. There were a lot of things that were just really interesting to watch. So you have the classic two-sided marketplace business, and there's always sort of this chicken and egg. You know, you need customer demand to get the supply side, so to speak, the beauty professionals. And obviously, you need beauty professionals to service the demand. How did you crack that in the early days? We posted on Indeed for 10 individuals to pilot and we got over 200 applications and then I had to weed things out and I had to learn so I had to figure out who was the beauty pro that was going to test these professionals for me to figure out if they could move fast enough if they were licensed if they weren't licensed all of those learnings came through why so many people applying I think the supply side is easier okay because you're offering money right sure Versus the demand side where you're telling them to pay money. I think that's a little bit harder. You have to build the trust in order to get their money. But the supply side wants the money, right? And when you think about the beauty professional, you have to think about the fact that this is a majority like word of mouth industry. So being able to scale using technology makes sense. Style seed is what, maybe 12 years old? So technology has really just been introduced into this industry. Right. It's not something that it's been in existence for a long time. But when you think about the car, for example, the taxis, right? Technology is just getting better, but technology has always been streamlined in there. The moment the phone became part of the journey for a taxi, right? Technology was introduced. Yeah, it's definitely those milestone moments. My sister-in-law actually is a stylist, and so... I have a little insights into, you know, she has to rent a chair and she has two chairs she rents and has to organize with people in the geographies of each of those locations to make appointments. And I completely can see how from a gig economy point of view, where someone could basically fill in that downtime where she 
may not have the option to have a hundred percent capacity filled in her location. So it makes a lot of sense to me that they would flock to this for sure. Yeah, I think that there's that, but there's also this interesting idea behind making beauty inclusive. And I think that that's my newest thing about what does it mean to be inclusive as a beauty brand? And a lot of people are thinking about it's being able to offer services to women of color, where I think that beauty needs to transcend color and start thinking about what does it mean just to make it available? How do we innovate the beauty chair? Right. Those are the type of things that I think we need to start thinking about in the industry that haven't been brought forward. But I'm looking forward to seeing what happens within the next 10 years about how people discuss and talk about inclusion. That's a great point. I, I hadn't even thought about that. And it, probably that's one of the, also the benefits of being able to perform these services in somebody's home because maybe they are either uncomfortable in the professional salon settings or they don't have the capabilities or accessibility, like you said, to get out to them. So that's a great point. One of my parents lives in an assisted living facility. They do have somebody who comes once in a while to cut hair and things like that. But there's probably a difference between basic grooming and this idea of confidence and feeling good about yourself through a beauty experience. I think that beauty or the experience of beauty is transformative for anybody, regardless on if it's basic grooming or not. Even when I think about the elderly market, you know, our grandparents are way, way more groomed than we are. And they care more about their hair, their makeup, and their nails than anybody else. That's probably true. Yeah, it's extremely true. I I even was bringing it up with somebody else and telling them these are the type of things that we need to think through. Grandma does not want to show up in sweatpants. She wants to wear couture too. So thinking about that and building that and, you know, how transformative that is for their confidence and the longevity of their lives, like all of that comes together. But it's one of those things that I'm very, very excited about. Outstanding. Maybe we switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about your funding journey. Have you raised money for this business in the past? Are you going to be raising money for it? BeautyLink has definitely had a wonderful and interesting fundraising experience. I I don't want to really dig deep into what that looks like. I would say that the fundraising journey when it comes to being a founder of color is unique. Can you give us one example? I think that there have been some situations in which firms have pretty much started to look at diversity and inclusion, but they're moving towards a micro fund model. Mm -hmm. So they don't have as much money to give. So the checks they typically give are anywhere between 25 or 100,000 versus our counterparts, which might receive a million dollars, $2 million, $3 million. So I think that there's a lot of different situations, right? And with time, we'll be able to see what it really looks like. Absolutely. So are you thinking about raising money or just building the business organically? Or how are you thinking about how you grow and sustain BeautyLink? I think there's a hybrid model for BeautyLink versus just looking at it from just raising capital. I think there's an understanding of what's really focused on is growth capital versus capital to make everything function. So 
So I think that there is this misconception that you can just always raise money and not actually have a business that works. We saw a couple of them implode last year in 2019. However, with things changing and transforming, I think that there is a middle ground. I think that there is a hybrid model that works best for everybody. But what I do appreciate about BeautyLink is that we are a two-sided marketplace. There can be sustainability with the right volume. So it's it's not necessarily always looking at raising capital. Is there raising capital in our future? Yes. Is it something that I want to say is the only thing I want to focus on? No. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's always the case is this tension between raising money and running your business. And sometimes it feels like the people who write the checks lose a little sight of that for sure. I just think that founders need to understand the difference between being a small business and being a fundable business and being a private equity business. They're very different. And sometimes the majority of founders don't know the difference because they think VC is the only way. But if you take a look at the EBITDA and the way that you're pacing your growth, you'll have an understanding on if you could go for a bank loan in three to four years, or if you should be looking at private investors, PE, right? Or angel investors at another end and VC at another end, like financing and startups is really about understanding your business and knowing what pathway you want to take. That makes sense. When you talk to investors, I imagine you've talked to some at some point, do they get your pain point that you're solving in the, in the industry that you're taking on? Or does it seem like it's not registering with them? I think that when it comes to BeautyLink in particular, we have some great competitors in the market. And their success is also what either is driving or scaring investors away. And you need to be able to prepare yourself on what that looks like. And in the early days, I didn't know. I really didn't know. I was just so focused on that. What can I do around raising money just for BeautyLink? Because BeautyLink is going to be so much different to where we are now, where I could say, we know that 63% of our customers have curly hair based off of us collecting data on personalization. We can look at partnering with PNG. It's just knowing the difference and how you present your company and what the value point is. When you first start out, it's an idea. When you go out afterwards, it's a company. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And there's a lot of work that goes on in between, for sure. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with Rika. Have you ever wondered what it would take to get national media interested in you, your company, or your brand? Are you looking for investor dollars in your company? Have you been to too many networking events and haven't figured out the perfect pitch to get someone to call you back? Then look no further than Perfect Pitches by Precious.com. Hi, my name is Precious Williams, and I'm affectionately known as the Killer Pitch Master. I will help you slay all competition. So if you're looking for the perfect or the killer elevator pitch, media pitch, or investor pitch for your company, then check me out at www.perfectpitchesbyprecious.com. I've gotten my clients on Shark Tank, CNN, Wall Street Journal, and a host of other big programs and national television networks. I can do it for you, as I've done it for a lot of women entrepreneurs and speakers. Check us out, perfectpitchesbyprecious.com. So we're back with Rika Elise from BeautyLink. We spent some time just talking about the evolution of the company 
Maybe you can talk, Rika, a little bit about how the company operates. You said you keep the company small. And I remember reading something about music in your management approach. Yeah, I use music in order to dictate where where we are as a company. Like in order for someone to get in touch with me, they need to be able to provide me a song to explain the situation that they want my feedback on. And that gives me about 10 minutes, 15 minutes of buffer time to figure out what the next issue is or how to solve it. So say, for example, someone may send me a Michael Jackson song in celebration of something. And that gives me that five minutes to listen to that song, that 10 minutes that they, it took for them to possibly find that song. 20 minutes in order to figure out the whole entire situation, right? Yay, we should celebrate. Oh my goodness, we have a fire. Like, that's why I I decided to use music. It also scales regardless of age. So it doesn't matter if you're 45, 65, or 18, you can still provide me with a song that you feel connects with the situation. And by the end of the week, I have a playlist. That's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. How did you come up with that? I love music. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Because we live our lives that way, right? Like you're driving home and it's a good day. So you're throwing on the the upbeat music or it was a tough day and you throw on the stuff that's embraced that melancholy or whatever. I think that is a brilliant, brilliant idea. And those playlists will be fun probably, you know, a year, two years, three years, five years from now. You go back and say, look at December 2019. We were rocking it, all these fun songs. And then, you know, June of 2020. Wow, there's a lot of dark songs there. So maybe we had a tough time that time. So I know you're you're passionate and involved in the startup ecosystem, especially with women founders and women of color in particular. Have there been organizations, allies, people that have helped to uplift you in your journey as an entrepreneur? I'd say that there are a lot of different organizations, especially for women of color, which is great. You know, the things that have been established since starting have definitely been like wonderful. You have Black Women Talk Tech now, you have Visible Women, you have all these different organizations that are doing great work. I think that when it comes to me though, I appreciate them and I enjoy participating, but I'm looking for something a little bit different as time moves forward. I think that I shouldn't have to choose to only deal with women of color in my environment and that there should be a more inclusive environment. So when I think about that, it's the main reason why I started looking at building at the table and female founders day is what could I do in order to unite a community versus split a community? I love that. And you were part of the Morgan Stanley program. Yes. What was that experience like? I think Morgan Stanley is doing a really great job at looking at diversity in a different way. And you brought up this really interesting point of not having to choose, not having to be pigeonholed in terms of who you are, the resources that are available to you and so forth. Was Morgan Stanley more of a broader approach or did you feel like it was still sort of at that stage where it's kind of narrow? I think Morgan Stanley's doing a great job as a corporate partner for a lot of startups with their program. I I can't necessarily say that I know if they were really narrow or wide. I only really participated in very few corporate-like programs. Well, from your perspective, in terms of what you got out of the program, do you feel like it was on the mark? I think Morgan Stanley did a good job. Nice. So you would recommend it to others? I think it depends on the founder. I think that 
if you're a good fit for Morgan Stanley is really driven through Morgan Stanley itself and not something that I could just say, hey, go for it. Different years count for different campaigns, different strategies, and I can't necessarily always tell every single founder to participate. Got it. And does everybody who participates get to be on a billboard in Times Square? Yes, they do. They do. It's part of the perks. I don't know if they changed anything, but I do know it's one of the perks. And it's definitely one of those situations where you're just like, wow, I didn't think that this would ever happen. And it does. Yeah. What was that like? I think that having the logo in Times Square definitely was this moment of I work my ass off and look to the I'm stressed out look and (laughs) my hustle mentality is strong look like it it was just one of those moments where there's so many emotions that are going through your body but you still need to figure out what happens past that happening for you I mean it's a very cool thing I've been doing startups for a long time I've never had any of my companies on a billboard in Times Square so congratulations for that it's a good thing and it's well deserved so thank you so much it was definitely one of the most rewarding things I've done I also did a visa ad for the world cup the women's world cup which was very like oh shit I did this um (laughs) that's awesome you know like I think what ends up being a really interesting place as a founder is understanding that your journey is really being laid out for the public to see and that they have no idea what it's like behind the scenes. Right. It's so true. I think it's romanticized quite a bit in media and pop culture. And there's a lot of hard, lonely days in the background, for sure. So uh, any chance you can get to celebrate, I've found, you know, keep in perspective, you know, like you said, the next day you got to go back to work, but definitely appreciate and embrace those times. Was there like a song or a playlist that went with the billboard? Most of my time at Morgan Stanley, I was listening to Rick Ross and Cardi B. Nice. It was definitely, I am somebody who like needs to listen to music about money and hoes. I know that's horrible for me to say (laughs) as a woman, but you know, when I think about the complexities and the appreciation of entrepreneurship and the African-American culture, it's really been tied into the church, pimps, and drug dealers. Hmm. Interesting. I wouldn't have drawn that conclusion myself, though. That's pretty interesting. And so that resonates with you? Yeah, it does resonate with me. I I think about it in in this way of like, I would have never known as much as I do about business and stability and fear if I didn't listen to the rap music, if I didn't read some of the stories about the pimps, right? Iceberg Slim, that whole entire collection. You think about all these things that resonate and build entrepreneurship in the Black community and what that means moving forward. What does our future look like? And it's looking at this place of always being pushed back, but letting church push you forward. But even in church, the pimps and the drug dealers were the ones that were given the most money and changing the communities. Fascinating. It's almost like anthropology, you know, kind of trying to piece together how this works and it's not straightforward so i think that's an interesting insight for sure what's the future for beauty link what's next we're currently expanding globally so 
that is immediate. Moving forward with the technology, we are looking at what does it mean to build an ecosystem versus a marketplace. So everybody thinks about the two-sided marketplace, but in order to make the two-sided marketplace work, you have to educate, gamify, and continue to build on what's already available. So I think that our technology will definitely feel a difference in the next year or two as we start to look at what are the regulatory challenges we have to deal with with the gig economy? What are the things that we have to look into moving forward in inclusivity? So do we ask the questions associated with more than just disability? One of the questions that one of our customers asked me not too long ago was like, can we mute our stylists? I'm like, what do you mean? Can we just tell them not to talk to us? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. Here's another preference, right? That you need to think about when it comes to personalization, right? And religion also being a question that we need to consider. And gender. Do you care if you have a male or female? Like those are the things that we have to start looking at in the personalization of the services that we provide. Right. Uh, it makes complete sense. And, you know, like we were saying before, the people want that, that the experience of them, right. They don't necessarily need somebody else's experience. So whatever that means. And so you said expanding internationally, are you looking at specific areas? We're definitely doing our work right now towards Africa. It's very interesting for me, especially looking at communities that are underbanked and deciding how to go about that, if it's the right market or the wrong market. So those type of things are really interesting. We're also looking at the Middle East. And in terms of Europe, I'm very limited. I think we might go into Paris, but Paris and Amsterdam, but I still need to evaluate those markets a little bit further. Diversity numbers when you move into Europe are a little bit more difficult than they are here in in the States. Sure. That's true, unfortunately. So... I guess we'll we'll be wrapping up here in a couple of minutes, but one one last question I have is, so you have a you know tremendous career and you've been working hard at being an entrepreneur, and I'm sure I'm sure that you've learned a lot. What's a couple of things that you might tell the ten year ago version of yourself that might have been thinking about doing a startup maybe at that point? What kind of advice would you give yourself? Know the difference between advice and opinions. It will save you a lot of time. It'll also dictate your relationships. There were a lot of people who told me I couldn't do it and I'm still here. That was an opinion that I wasn't going to be able to do it. There's also the need to look at mental health. Because you spend so much time alone in your head as an entrepreneur, you need to be able to have a place to let go. So I think mental health is really important and something that should be focused upon more early on. That's a great point. It's a tough, tough business. I mean, entrepreneurs are warriors. And yeah, they don't fight with a gun or a sword, but they have to fight disbelief. They have to fight naysayers. They have to fight the status quo. You're trying to change and do something different. And so that's being a warrior. Like you said, you're a solo founder. So there's a lot you have to go through and figure out, do we expand into Africa versus South America? And should we change our logo color from blue to red and all of those decisions have and everything in between are 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 ones that you have to process so that's a that's a great point about the mental health well this has been so good i have enjoyed our conversation tremendously 
So Rika, if people want to get a hold of you or find out more about what you're doing, either with At The Table or Beauty Link, do you have any ways that you'd offer for people to find out more? Sure. If you're trying to find out about Beauty Link, please follow us at Beauty Link with a Y, L-Y-N-K, on all social media. And our website is beautylink.com. As it comes for At The Table and Female Founders Day and the other projects I work on, rikaalize.com is the best way to, to figure out what those projects look like. And I'm very, very loving on Twitter and horrible over email. So if you DM me, I will definitely be nice to you. Got it. That's very clear. I'm glad you made that distinction. Well, this has been so much fun, Rika. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We'd like to thank our guest, Rika Elise from BeautyLink, and our sponsor, Perfect Pitches by Precious. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Kihanya. Our music was composed by Adrian Berengur, Jason Donnelly, C.J. Harris, Judson Lee, Frederick Storm, and Michael Vignola. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.